You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. I'm Rodney Davis. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Patrick, Caitlin, and Rodney live from Europe, showing dedication to the Beltway briefing. And Towner will be hopping on. I'd like to point out for the record, Mark Alderman is not joining us from from Asia, but Rodney Davis, dedicated as he is, Patrick and Caitlin, makes the effort and and joins us from Europe. Thank you, Rodney. And a heck of a week in Washington. (laughs) I don't even know where to begin with that, but we have a new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. Rodney, you served with him. You know him. Let's start off with your assessment of of him as, as the leader of the House of Representatives. Look, Mike's a great guy. Uh, know Mike well. I, I watched him grow after he got elected into the RSC chair, and then eventually as a member of uh, of the House leadership team when I was there. And Mike was somebody I saw in the House gym every morning. So I've got a chance to talk to him and, like I do all of my colleagues, harass them on a regular basis. He's just somebody who really put his head down and wanted to uh, wanted to build consensus. Now, he and I didn't have the exact same voting record, but there's one thing you can say about Mike Johnson. He listened to everybody and what it meant to their districts. And I think it showed with the disastrous few weeks that we as Republicans in the House have had, uh, having somebody that could get consensus, let alone a unanimous vote, was something that I, I didn't know would, would happen so quickly. I'm glad Mike's done it. I think he's got a pretty you know, long learning curve to go from a member of leadership to being the speaker, but he's got a lot of good people around him. He's got a great staff. He's got a great team. And I know he's already listening to some of the folks that understand how to make the house operate. And I think it's, uh, I think it's going to be a good change of pace for us as Republicans and the sheer fact that we're united once again in the majority. Uh, We'll see how long it lasts, but I hope it lasts a long while. Rodney, is he going to be able to bring the Republicans where, you know, they need to be as far as the operation of government. I mean, I guess the first gating item is another impending government shutdown on November 17th. Presumably they'll kick that down the road yet again. I know that's what he said he wants to do, but is he, is he going to be able, are they going to give him the room to actually run the conference? Oh, most definitely. You saw that with the unanimous vote. I mean, look, Kevin McCarthy did everything you globalists and Democrats like Patrick wanted. He he actually made sure we didn't have a government shutdown. He made sure we had a debt deal that was one of the best Republican deals, conservative deals that I've seen in my time as being a member and, and, and post that. Mike has the conference more unified because Mike really didn't have any enemies. And we all know Kevin did what he needed to do. He did what the majority of Republicans wanted him to do, but because Matt Gates, Nancy Mace, Bob Good, Eli Crane, and a few others, what they had in a personal beef with Kevin McCarthy was shown to the entire world. 
And I think they all learned their lesson with the three weeks of, of craziness within the house. You know, I, I thought it was pretty interesting. I saw a clip. Dusty Johnson was doing an interview with CNN after they left one of their conference meetings. And he said something about, look, the group of eight needed to plan better because this was a terrible execution. And my former colleague, Nancy Mace, walked by and said, this was the plan. And Dusty's comments were, well, if you call the lady, if you call that strategic planning, that's something that, you know, and then kind of just wandered off after that. But, you know, it's, it's frustrating because that interview and those comments right there epitomized that this was less about what Kevin did legislatively and more about how can I, how can I exact some revenge because of a personal beef I have with somebody? Yeah. Is he, Rodney, is he maybe, I mean, the, the way I've been, de been describing him is more of an institutionalist than a Jim Jordan, than the burn it down crowd. Is that right? Or. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah I mean, he's a constitutional lawyer. I mean, Patrick, you know, who who loved all over constitutional attorneys when Barack Obama came along. I don't love this guy, uh, but he he was on the conservative side of, of many uh, legal challenges. He's very much pro-life. He's very, uh, very much going to toe uh, the conservative line on a lot of issues. But like a lot of Louisiana Republicans, he also understands that there's a role in government. There's a role the federal government to play in investing and protecting uh, America's defense, uh, America's defense capabilities. I mean, these are the types of things that, yeah. that many Republicans in Southern states rally around, and Mike will too. Well, anytime I, Rodney's sound goes out, I'm just going to assume this is Italy trying to censor him and not a Wi Fi issue. Right. Did I go out? You missed just for my a second. Making fun of you? Just, just for a second. But I guess to me, the, the use of the word conservative the word gets overused and he is a real, con I mean, he's definitely a social conservative. Um, he's a hardcore cultural conservative, but that's a lot different than labeling Jim Jordan or Matt Gates a conservative. Like those are burn it down conservatives in my, in my opinion. No, and, Matt, Matt Gates is a burn it down. Jim, Jim used to be, Jim is not anymore. Okay, less so. Let's settle on less so from the globalist perspective. Globalist, I'm in Europe, you know, I, I guess when in Rome. There you go. Um, I love the evolution from being a burn it down guy to not being a burn it down guy. I just, it's always <laughs> like, I don't know how you, it's such a dramatic shift. <laughs> well, John, John Boehner was a burn it down guy. Yeah, and then so, was, yes. was, was ousted. John Boehner was the burn it down guy of the, the early 90s. Yeah. So we're. True. So where is your party, Rodney, like, and, and Caitlin coming out of this? I mean, what's the, what's the state of affairs inside the caucus? Caitlin. 
I think Rodney already hit on a lot of it, but I just want to um, bring up a quote from Patrick McHenry this week that at this point, I don't even know how many rounds of, of votings internal um, we, we've done over the course of the past 22 days, well, 23 days. But uh, Patrick McHenry called this perhaps the dumbest set of politics or decision making a majority party in this institution can make. And I think to Rodney's point about, you know, these original eight really having no clear plan and throwing the house into chaos. And unfortunately, what we've seen unfold on the world stage over the course of the last three weeks, and then the optics of, of what's going on in Israel juxtaposed with the chaos happening in the U.S. House of Representatives. But look, I'm glad we're on the other side of it. I'm glad we've got a speaker. I'm glad we're moving forward. I'm glad Mike Johnson has been floating already that he has, you know, is talking to some of his more conservative colleagues about supporting a plan to fund government through, you know, through January or maybe even through April. We needed a, a captain of the ship again. I see him more as a kind of a caretaker speaker than a, a charismatic fundraising you know, speaker, Kevin McCarthy. But I think everyone's just really ready to get back to work up there. You know, if I if I can add to, to what Caitlin said, I agree with everything she just mentioned. And, and just to remind her, remember when Jim Jordan was rounding up votes to be speaker, he was promising a short-term CR. Uh, I, I think that's you know that's where the Republicans are right now is they understand the fiscal limitations of divided government. They understand they're not going to get everything they want, which is the first for some of my former colleagues. But it's it's probably in the long run a better place for them, the party, and and frankly the country than they've been in a long time. I gotta ask one more question, which is how do you feel about Trump having picked the speaker, Rodney? Well, I don't think Donald Trump picked the speaker. I disagree with that that assessment. Well, Trump I mean, says he, I don't think Donald Trump knew who Mike Johnson was, you know, four days ago, candidly. I actually I don't think that's true, Caitlin, because first of all, he was out front on the election, 2020 election issues. He was Trump. Trump actually called him at that time. He sent a note around to the conference asking who's on board with the litigation. So it's hard to square all of the. It's hard to square all of this. <laughs> it's it's not hard to square when you know who Donald Trump is. I mean, Donald Trump used to call me, but it didn't stop him from endorsing my opponent. The only reason Donald Trump wanted to to knock Tom Emmer out was because it was it, it was entertainment for him. I mean, this this wasn't some conspiracy. It's entertainment for the rest of us too, by the way, Rodney. I, I, that's because that's because you Democrats and our eight love chaos. You guys don't love governing. You you clearly are not independent thinkers like you Republicans are. I'm not allowed to be entertained by Trump's tweet. I found it funny. I, it's not my. I, I'm not voting for the speaker. I thought I just thought it was funny. Hey, hey, listen, I know Tom, and I know he would have done a great job. So I I didn't find as much humor in it because it's more personal for me. But Donald Trump knows Mike Johnson. Donald Trump knows a lot of Republicans who served in Congress like me and would call each and every one of us at a time where it was beneficial for him and him alone. So you can't say just because he knows Donald Trump and Trump has called him numerous times that somehow Trump is 
is responsible for picking him. Because frankly, if that's the case, then he would have gotten Jim Jordan over Steve Scalise, who was very close to Donald Trump. So I just disagree with that that whole assessment of your question. And, and, you know, I think Republicans like Caitlin and me should be offended on a daily basis with globalists like you, Howard. I, I welcome you taking offense to my perspective. Patrick. What I found, what I found interesting about the whole thing, and Ron, you, you're alluding to it with Jordan. I mean, they went through everyone in leadership, right? From starting with McCarthy to Scalise to Jordan to, and I guess Jordan wasn't, I guess he was kind of in leadership, right? To Emmer. And there's some real differences ideologically within the caucus from those four people. But it seemed like the thing they all had in common is they all had some enemies and they had some people who didn't like them. And I kind of think what's interesting is that what really seems to have won the day here for the new speaker is just not is sort of like separate from even it, it obviously helped that he was more on the conservative side of the spectrum. Like I thought Marjorie Taylor Greene had some tweet that basically said, like, it's the Trump party and the conference should reflect that. I mean, I don't think that's good for the country, but she's not wrong. Right. There's more there's more support there. And and so I think it helped that he was conservative, but it also seemed to just really help him that he wasn't a jerk. Right. I mean, that's it's amazing how like just sometimes being a nice enough guy for the purposes of where the Republicans were at with this whole thing, they just needed to get. They needed someone to get to 217, right? They needed someone who wasn't hated by four or five people or 10 people or 20 people. And it seems like this is the guy who was like kind of nice enough and well-liked enough to get out of the predicament they're in. It didn't have anything to do with what kind of speaker is he going to be or how is he going to govern or what's his capacity to negotiate or any, I mean, that's sort of just, we don't know any of that, right? We're going to have to wait and see. And I'm, I think that's an open question, but it seemed like what got him over the finish line was there's so much anger and intensity amongst moderates, conservatives, Trump haters, Trump supporters, that he was like the only person that could kind of get it to the next step. So I found that interesting. I mean, one dimension is he's only been in the house for yeah. half a dozen years. So he hasn't had enough time to piss people off like Kevin McCarthy or whoever. It's interesting, you know, for our, for our listeners, there's a, an old New Yorker old few years old New Yorker article that I passed around that. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about Stewart. <laughs> From 2020 in the context of litigation around the election. And I thought it was pretty interesting. It was an interview with the speaker about the state of the election. And I mean, he was clearly in the camp of, at least to some degree, you know, Trump was wrong, but he was very legalistic about the effort and i mean i don't like any of that stuff but he was at least approaching it principally from a legal perspective which is a little more it's a little less offensive than again the people who were just reflexively reacting to whatever trump was saying and perpetrating certainly less offensive than the people that were out there perpetrating schemes to overturn the election. 
look, I, I, I agree. I lived it. I watched it. I sat up at the front of conference meetings when this was debated. Mike Johnson against others, like Chip Roy, who, like me, voted to certify and thought any challenge was was uh, unconstitutional. Uh, but it, it, still, it was a disagreement. Now, when a Republican wins, I, I guarantee you're going to see Democrats challenge electoral counts in states, and it will be to save democracy versus, you know, inciting an insurrection. And we've had that discussion numerous times about when it's happened in the past, but you were right. And that is why Mike Johnson got unanimous support, because he may have disagreed with me. He may have disagreed with many others, but he was not offensive about it. And he actually laid out what he thought his case was, even though I will say just because he said it in a nice way, it didn't make it any different than what Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani said in a different way and lost 60 straight cases. Well said, in, Rodney. In I agree with that. So, Patrick, on the flip side of all this, he's, I mean, he's, it's easy to label him an election denier. And he is, as Rodney said, strongly pro-life. And these are the issues that moved the needle last year in the midterms and moved them in favor of the Democrats. And to me, these have got to be licking their chops. They have to be careful not to overplay their hand. I, I think, feel like Rodney and Kim are going to chuckle at this, but I think they know what I'm saying. I, I what I could see, Democrats need to be careful not to turn him into a caricature that appears to be mean and unfair. And you can, I mean, listen, he lives, he doesn't live a New York, Washington, D.C., Chicago life. He's, he reminds me of like a suburban evangelical youth pastor. Like that's kind of what, that's like the vibe I get from just seeing him on TV and everything. And what Democrats have to be careful of doing is folk, they, Democrats need to focus on the issues and not, it can't appear that they are, it goes back to Howard, you bringing up the deplorables thing from the, it, if it seems like they are criticizing his way of life and who, just who he is as a person, I don't think a lot of Americans like that. And I think they know, they know when things come across as cruel. It also, by the way, doesn't give you a whole lot of room to call Donald Trump all sorts of things when, you know, if you're going to criticize the new speaker. So they got to focus on the fact that his political views, while in the mainstream of the Republican caucus in the House, are outside of the mainstream of a majority of Americans. And I think if they focus on that, you know, that will help. I, I just I don't know how big an issue he's going to be, though, like Howard, as we're talking about this, I'm thinking about this for the first time. I just think Trump is going to it's only about Trump. Like, I, I think how he'll be judged as speaker will probably be. Can he negotiate through some of these more challenging fiscal deadlines? Can he kind of govern the House in an orderly way? I don't know if I see him being like featured in ads and stuff in congressional races. Maybe he will be. But I just feel like it's all going to be about Trump next year. And I just don't think anyone else really matters. Caitlin, jump in. 
I think I think Patrick's exactly right. I do not think that we're going to, you know, this is going to be an electoral issue that Americans are talking about when they go to the polls to vote uh, in November 2024. I think this will be long forgotten. Of course, it won't be long forgotten by us or by the members of the House that have been living this for the past 23 days. But I do not think this is going to be an election issue. And then I'll also note that, look, Mike Johnson has served his constituency in his district, and that has been his role. He's never been in a leadership position before. We have no idea how how he might pivot when he is, you know, stepping up and being a leader of the caucus, not just the, you know, the representative from his very conservative Louisiana district. So we might see more of a pivot just because he's been, you know, such a staunch conservative on many issues doesn't mean that that's necessarily what he's going to want to spend floor time on, for example. So I think we, I'm, I'm in a cautious wait and see approach. We're, you know, telling clients there's still a lot that we're going to get done and work towards. And this doesn't really, you know, look, the house is back open for business and we've got a lot to do. Well, One it, thing it, I want it, to get you to comment on too. Uh, this is, this goes beyond in Washington. I love obviously Republican democratic banter, but how about some of the Senate snobbery of senators saying they had to Google who he was instead of just being like, I haven't had a chance to meet him, like looking forward to meeting him. There was so much. Senators just cannot help themselves in demeaning rank and file members of the House of Representatives. And I just I thought it was so funny that they just couldn't couldn't help themselves. Well, well, one thing I will tell you about Mike Johnson, and I'm going to have to run, but Mike sees all of that and he will use that to his advantage, to get what he wants done. And that's why I think he's going to be a great speaker, especially in the times that we've seen with this short Republican majority. Um, Mike's the right guy for the right time, and he's in the right job right now. Well, Rodney, thanks for ducking in from Europe. We'll continue the conversation, but uh, obviously great to get your firsthand perspective on, on somebody you know and have worked with and we'll continue that conversation when you're back. All right. Take care, everyone. So Patrick, I mean, I, I, I guess from my point of view and Caitlin, I mean, I, every, this is all a giant narrative. And I do think that it's, it's fairly easy to say Republican chaos led to a Trump nominated MAGA conservative who believes that, you know, your right to choose is should be taken away. I, I, I mean, I hear you Patrick on the don't overplay your hand. I think that's, I think that's right. And I don't think this guy does not, he's not going to be a lightning rod in all like personally, I, he doesn't strike any of us as a person who's going to make himself a lightning rod. He doesn't come across that way, but still, I think it's pretty easy to tag him. Yeah. I I mean, it is. And I, I guess one thing I was thinking about before we get to the presidential election, we haven't talked about it obviously for a few weeks because the house has been suspended basically, but uh, impeachment. I mean, that to me is going to be the first test of like, you know, how is he going to deal with that? And if impeachment is in any way, if Towner was on, he thinks it's a foregone conclusion. If that is, I'm not sure that's true, but if it is true, it's going to be pretty easy to tag this guy and the the kind of extreme right in the Republican caucus and say, see, this is the first thing they did, or this is, this is, 
this is what's happened. We've, you know, we've kind of gone down the rabbit hole and the right wing of the Republican caucus has taken over and they're impeaching Biden. And that narrative, I think, is very helpful for the Democrats to just make the party and the Republican caucus in the House look extreme. Caitlin? We'll see. I mean, that's I think we'll see what happens. You're absolutely right, Howard. There's a lot of oppo research. There's a lot of old articles. There's a lot of really, really deep conservative thinking that is certainly far to the right of where I am. And everyone sees me as the kind of far right conservative on this podcast some days. Not really. But not really. But <laughs> Look, I think we'll see. We'll see if he pivots as a leader. I will note that, you know, the impeachment inquiry started under Speaker Kevin McCarthy. So it's, you know, it's not, it, it was already opened. Candidly, thank you, Patrick. I kind of forgot that that was out there. It's been such a wild couple of weeks. Um, but we'll, a lot, a lot is can happen and can change between now and Election Day. And we'll see. Meanwhile, guys, the geopolitical situation has i don't think it's been as dangerous i really don't think it's been as dangerous as it is right now in my lifetime that's how i feel and maybe a piece of that is the the fact that i'm jewish and that i feel so acutely what's going on in israel but i also think israel was you know, obviously Hamas needs to be dealt with, but part of what, well, my view, Hamas needs to be dealt with. Part of what Israel let its guard down and let its guard down in part because of internal political division. And obviously every country has its own factors that affect the political division, but we have a lot of political division, and that's not going anywhere. At least it doesn't appear to be, and I, I'm i very concerned about that, given the geopolitical instability. 100% agree. It's like, the, I, I, it's the thing that has, I feel like for the longest time, concerned me just about where our politics here in the United States are going is that I've probably said it on the podcast before. It's just all of this breaking down of norms and institutions is all to the benefit of our adversaries and they see it and they will seize on it if given an opportunity. And I think that's, yeah, you pointed it out perfectly, Howard. I feel like it's a, it's a cautionary tale for us, you know, seeing what's happened in, in Israel. It's certainly an incredibly unsettling time. I will give major kudos to President Biden in his initial reaction and his strong, strong support for Israel and for them doing what they need to do to rid Gaza of Hamas and these awful, awful terrorists. And I fully support that. I hope, you know, as the political pressures and the headlines, you know, continue to seep and we're already seeing a change in media narrative, which is incredibly frustrating from, you know, two weeks ago. And we're already in, you know, CNN headlines for getting some of the horrors and atrocities that we saw. 
it's going to be tough politically, but I hope he stands strong. I think Blinken's been doing a great job standing strong and supporting our most important ally. But Howard, to your point, it's incredibly unsettling. If you don't think China's eyeing, you know, going into Taiwan during this time and and, and you don't think Russia is keeping a very close eye on everything that's happening. And that's why it was so important that House Republicans get their act together, get a speaker and get back to work. We need to pass a Ukraine, a supplemental with Ukraine funding. We need to pass support for Israel and additional funding. Um, we've got a lot that we need to focus on. And I'm just really glad that we can, after 23 days, put that behind us because you're absolutely right. It's a really unsettling time. Yeah, well said. Look, look at the look at the Israel resolution that they did on the House floor. I, I pointed this out to someone yesterday, just again. I don't want to sound like a hyper-partisan here, but I am very pro-Israel. I, I agree, Caitlin, with what you said. I think the president's been so strong. I think his message has been really important. Howard, we talked a little earlier about maybe some polling that showed he's slipping with young voters over his response. And I'm sure they I, I feel like to them, listen, they all they're in the business of winning elections. But I think President Biden has it's been a strong, needed voice. And younger progressives are just wrong on this issue. But just look at the vote in the House. Only nine Democrats voted against that. It's not like that is a majority position within the Democratic caucus, even as there's it's always, oh, the party's getting more progressive, all this stuff. Yeah. But, you know, if you put a vote on that, if you put a resolution on the House floor who won the 2020 election, more than half the Republican Party would say that Trump won. It's it is something to be concerned about on the Democratic side that that this kind of anti-Israel sentiment has taken hold. And we should, I'm glad Biden and others are pushing back on that, but it is still a small percentage of elected Democrats who feel that way. It's not an overwhelming plurality or anything like that. Yeah. It's, but they're noisy. And And they get a lot of outsized airtime and conservatives focus on them. You watch Fox news, I mean, you would swear it's half the caucus, and it's not. Right. No, it's not. There's no no doubt about it, but they are noisy, and yeah. it's and, – and frankly, like, what's going on on college campuses around the yeah. country, it's – I mean, it's crazy. They're giving cover to – they're giving cover to terrorists. Yep. And, look, I don't – to your point, this isn't this isn't a left right. This isn't a left right issue. It's not. But you do have you do have some noisy folks, you know, on the far far left that are just completely there. They too are. You're right. It's not your point, Patrick. On the Trump thing is, you have a majority of Republicans that are out of touch with a majority of the country on that issue versus here you have a very, very slim minority of Democrats that are out of touch with a majority of the country, but they're. I feel like it gets covered. Like it's the same. That's at least how it appears to me. Like, yeah, both sides are crazy. It's like, well, I just don't. Yeah. I don't think the numbers, I just don't think they're reflective of, of what we're really talking about. Yeah. It's hard to square. It's hard for me to wrap my head around comparing the two issues. I'm thinking out loud. One is so just grossly political and the other feels 
ex, I mean, it's ex, it's an existential issue. I think it's an existential issue for this country, which is part of the reason Biden has been so strong. I mean, I think he's they're completely doing the right thing. It's I don't know. I I I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around the the comparison. I'm probably too emotionally close to it to to do that, but it's it's a trying time. There's a great there's a great uh opinion piece in the New York Times today written by former diplomat Dennis Ross on why Hamas has to go, which I should be recommended reading for everybody, most especially these knuckleheads running around on college campuses supporting terrorists. Do you think that when you mentioned just kind of the broader sort of geopolitical issues happening right now, do you think, I mean, one thing I think, frankly, as a Democrat, I worry about a little on the political side is that even if President Biden's response in Israel has been strong, the international narrative of problems all over the world and the feeling that things are very chaotic right now is not necessarily a good thing for the incumbent president, right? I just feel like every more it's like whether it's Israel or Syria or Russia and Ukraine or uh, what just happened in China overnight, like uh, with the pilots again, it's just like there's all this stuff. And I feel like if you're the challenger, whether it's Trump or whoever on the Republican side, you can print, paint a picture of a pretty chaotic world right now. And I just think voters might be receptive to that, even though, you know, I don't think anyone with half a brain thinks all of this is President Biden's fault. But it's just sometimes when you're the incumbent, you bear the responsibility of like, what is the? It's like with the economy. What's what's state of the economy? What's the state of the world? How do people feel? And if they don't feel good, it's not going to be good for the incumbent. Do you think that that it has the potential to be bad for Biden? But I don't think we have any idea sitting here in October of 23 how it's going to play itself out over the course of the next year. And I think it's about where we find ourselves in a year. I mean, it is tumultuous, you know, between the various moving parts. I think it's been very difficult for Biden. Look, I think other than Afghanistan, Biden's done, in my judgment, a very strong job on the global stage of navigating through a very, very tricky world. And but his narrative, it's hard for him to get his that narrative through. I feel like people just aren't paying attention because there's too much noise at home on some level. But then again, it's a binary choice at the end of the day. And whether you're talking about losing young voters or whatever it is, it's a it's a it's going to be a binary choice. And in all likelihood, a binary choice between. Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And, you know, the premise I laid out would also mean that you could vote the other way for Donald Trump as a as a force of stability, which seems right. You know, Patrick, your point would be so right if it was any other candidate than Donald Trump, um, because you guys would be toast. I mean, particularly when we're feeling instability in the world. And it's usually the Reagan party, the steady hand, the pro-defense, the pro-promoting democracy abroad. And I don't know, we're living in an upside world. I'm still holding out hope that we have another choice other than Donald Trump. But, 
you know, someone's got to hold out some hope on this podcast, guys. It is. Summon, though. We haven't talked about that. I mean, good, good report this morning. 4.9% growth GDP. Wages are outpacing inflation. That's some good news. The economy's definitely been resilient. Uh, that's good news for Biden as long as it, as long as it holds. I'll tell you, I think it's been damn interesting to watch what's going on in Georgia with so far three plea deals between defendants in the Georgia case and Democrats. I mean, and um, uh, the prosecutors who happen to be Democrats, but that's that was a my point. Yeah, it was a Freudian slip. Wow. But um, no, I think it's <laughs> that was funny. It's been it's been interesting to watch. I think what's going on in the courtroom in his civil fraud case in New York, I think, has been super interesting to watch. Watching him get put in his place by this judge the other day who fined him again for running his mouth and violating his gag order and told him, if you keep doing it, it's going to get a lot worse. I mean, I I still am of the view that at the end of the day, this is going to I know people say it's helping his popularity. It's increasing his popularity. I, I think maybe among people who are already predisposed to support him, but I think it eventually takes a bite out of him piece by piece a, a by bell piece. curve on that, Howard. Exactly. That's. And I think it remains to be seen how all this plays out. And I completely agree with you, Caitlin, that if it's anybody else. Well, and it makes it and then you kind of if you look if you look at the rest of the candidates, like, listen, base cases, he's the nominee and there's nothing anyone can do about it. But if you open your mind, like Howard, what you're saying, if you allow for the possibility that there's something that could happen that we can't predict on, on the legal front or whatever and it does go another way. I mean, I got to say, if you just handicapping the other candidates, I feel like Nikki Haley's done a very good job of building the right type of campaign. It's the opposite of DeSantis, right? He he tried to run like this just, I mean, he was spending money beyond what he could possibly sustain for a long period of time. She's been real smart, real frugal, getting the sound bites where she can, slowly rising, I mean, I think she's done a great job. It it may all be for not, but like it's it's she seems to be positioning herself for seeing if there's a fumble. And if if that happens, I think she'd be in a good spot. I think it was interesting uh, on DeSantis. I can't remember the name of the guy in Florida. He's a Jewish legislator in Florida who withdrew his he's been a big DeSantis ally in the legislature and had endorsed him and now has flipped his support to, to Trump. People are abandoning ship on descent DeSantis. I don't, I don't see how he gets it back. I mean, it's just been terrible. I mean, and just not, I it just hasn't been a smart campaign at all. No. And I, I look, it's like, although apparently you can run a bad campaign and become vice president of the United States. So that's a good point. Who knows? But uh, yeah, Nikki Haley. Look, if it's I, I don't see how Joe Biden beats beats Nikki Haley. If the Republicans are smart enough to put somebody forward, 
you know, a, a person of color who's been a governor and a UN ambassador served under Trump, but isn't too Trumpy. Um, what a general election. I just, there's no right. doubt. I just, that's yeah. So we'll see. But see yeah. Yeah. I, I know you would, but meanwhile, Biden's done a very solid job. I'll tell you as, as somebody who's, who's worrying each and every day about the anti-Semitism that's out there and the safety of, you know, my family and, and other people it's, it's been, he's been phenomenal and courageous in a way that I think many politicians haven't been in the history of this country, including FDR and the run up to world war two and others. And so I, I applaud him for, you know, for what he's doing, what he's doing here. Uh, well, uh, guys, fun as, as always, mostly fun, uh, hard to talk about some of this stuff, but, um, I think we got some great perspective from Rodney on, on the new speaker and obviously ex exciting for us that we have someone on our team that, you know, that knows him. That doesn't knows have him. to Google him. That right. knows, knows who he is. Yeah. Yeah, right. Right. Uh, and obviously others of us have, you know, have worked with his office and, you know, and he'll, he'll be bringing staff over. <laughs> he has to bring staff over that have served other, other leaders. So there's some continuity there as well. That's all we have for today, but thank you for joining us, everybody. Caitlin, Patrick, we will be back next week. Thanks guys. You've been listening to the Beltway Briefing a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.